HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Nissa Pearson of Jeunesse Herb and Culinary Center. Um, th- this space, the Jeunesse Herb and Culinary Center, is very multifaceted. It's hard to explain uh, in one short sentence because there's a lot of work that went into it before, a lot of travels, a lot, lot of education. And what it really is, is this amazing kind of classroom, educative forum for, you know, smart ideas of organic, fair trade, um, cuisine, food, uh, feeding the community. But we'll discuss a little more about that space itself. But first, we'll introduce you to uh, Nissa. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. Um, I had the privilege of uh, working or shooting in Nissa's space a while back. And let me tell you, if you're looking for a photo space, uh, this is one of the most pimped out kitchens in Brooklyn that I've seen in a while. Um, but I was actually led to you because of your classes. A couple, I think uh, Jacques from Palo Santo had, you know, forwarded me on and said, oh, you should do a class here or you should check out what Nissa is doing. She knows so much about everything, worldly cuisine. Um, you grew up in Santa Monica, California, uh, which is plush and ripe of everything all Beach year bomb. round. Yeah. Um, what was your first introduction to food and cuisine or love of that? Well, I think that for a lot of people that are from California, um, abundance of produce is kind of just a natural uh, part of it. So that for one, I mean, you know, we grew up with produce, fresh produce around us year round. And it wasn't from far. Like, yeah. Like if you're at other places, but I think probably the first uh, 
real experience with food that we had is as children, we lived in Central America. And I think that for me was kind of like the beginning of really understanding people's relationship to food in a different way. So, I mean, I think that that would be the first step of a lot more. Why that move away from Central Coast or Southern California to... Central America. Well, we have one of those unique stories where we had a uh, bitter custody battle in California, which uh, led to uh, all of us wanting to stay with our father. And uh, this was during the late 80s, during the Iran-Contra scandal. And so uh, my father uh, technically kidnapped us (laughs) and brought us to Nicaragua. And uh, the Nicaraguans stamped us in, gave us residency, and didn't give us back. So we lived down in Central America for about three years, three and a half years. Yeah, and this was during the mid-80s. Yep. And uh, what was Nicaragua like? Was it considered a third world country? Was it considered, you know, affluent? For Americans, no, it was considered a war zone at yeah. that time. I mean, there was bridges blown up in a lot of places. Um, there was tanks rolling down the streets of Managua. Um, as a child, as an adult, I understood that. As you asked me that question, yeah. but as a child, I would have seen it completely differently. We saw it as you know, a place where we played, we ate, we learned. Um, For us, it was really no different. There was not a lot of Americans down there. Americans weren't typically allowed in Nicaragua. Um, It was definitely more occupied, let's call it, by a lot of the Eastern uh, European kind of more communist uh, people like Eastern European or Eastern Germans and stuff like that. So we were um, one of or just a very few Americans yeah. that were down there. So did you ever feel indigenous? Did you ever feel like you belonged to Nicaragua? Yeah, com- yeah, completely. And I know that um, after we left for a long time, I mean, and to this day still, like, I really feel more Central American than I do California, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And what was the cuisine? What was the landscape like? I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was one of the first places that I'd ever been that people made everything from scratch. So one of the things that I'll never forget is that Every, like for every meal you had, there was a new juice. It was kind of like a new fruit just was born in every single minute, you know, and incredible flavors, vibrant colors. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, what kind of new juices, what, what fruits uh, were discovered down there? For instance, one of our, my family's favorite is the pitaya and lime juice. So, um, which ultimately the pitaya is basically a cactus fruit, but it's just a certain um, variety that's grown down there. And it's this great like magenta pink cactus fruit that they make and they cut it with lime and probably tons of sugar. Yeah. And uh, it was just this fuchsia colored concoction that was like amazing to us. So, I mean, it was a completely different palette too than what you were used to from Santa Monica. Yes. Um, What other kind of foods were new to you? Um, A lot of, uh, there was a lot of cabbages. Things were, you know, there was a lot of salts like is typical for Central American food. So like pickled cabbages, um, a lot of stews, stews of beef, stews of chicken, um, with tons of chilies and tons of vegetables. Um, One of the things I really remember as a child loving was the chayote squash, um, which is still to this day, I mean, it's kind of a you know, bland or gentler squash, but I remember loving it as a child, and I, I really um, enjoyed that. And of course, uh, the gallo pinto, which is still to this day, I'm trying to perfect how you make it taste like they. What is the gallo pinto? It's beans and rice fried yeah. together. Yeah. And, you know, the origin is debatable. Some say Costa Rica, some say Nicaragua. 
Um, but it's debatable. And I am, I swear that the real flavor comes from the old cast iron pans that they've just never cleaned because yeah. I can't get it to taste like that. Yeah, yeah, seasoned, as they call exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so how many years were you actually down in Central America? About three and a half. We were in Nicaragua for uh, a year and a half, uh, Costa Rica for a year and a half, and then about a half a year spent. We drove down there, so, yeah. and then we came back on a boat from Panama. Yeah, and back to Santa Monica. We actually went back to Minnesota, where my father was from, so I have a uh, also deep connection to uh, Minnesota. Yeah, I was about to say, a lot of culture shocks going on here. Exactly. So then you were dealing with a lot of Midwest foods. Yes, yes. Yeah. And wild rice, I guess. That's all. That's the limit of what I know from Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was in, in high, I went to high school and college in Minnesota, and um, the, the foods, I mean, I don't, I don't recall the, the foods all that you know that much but certainly you know and no offense to the minnesotans you know but there can be some blandish foods <laughs> out there um a lot of casseroles hot dish yeah. all that kind of stuff but that's actually how i started to cook where i actually started to take all these dishes and want to make them my own um uh when we were in high school uh we started to play sports and stuff like that like all you know great american kids <laughs> and we would uh, want to feed ourselves after sports and you know we open up the kitchen cupboard and there's macaroni and cheese I hated macaroni and cheese so I tried to concoct my own creations using noodles and different soup mixes and flavors and herbs and stuff like that so Minnesota food is actually what got me cooking yeah yeah (laughs) because the lack of all the flavor profiles that you were used to or hoping for and as somebody who was from California with the you know experience in Central America I knew that there was a lot more that I needed to that I could use and I mean I think that if I had to describe my cooking it would be that it's very diverse it utilizes everything that I've seen tasted and have yet to experience so I, I think that was the great part about when I started to cook is that I had had this experience of a child in Central America and also, you know, a a kid born in California in the world of produce. So it was a it was easy transition into using what the world has to offer. Yeah. And I mean, in high school, you were cooking for yourself. In college, you had Mrs. Dorm Room and you were feeding fellow college students. Um, Was that a dinner club? Was that a party or was that just you cooking away? It was just me cooking. I mean, I had... um, we I lived in a house with uh, eight other girls, and as a um, I think they call that a convent. Right? Yeah, man, <laughs> I don't think that's yeah. what you can call this one. Um, but uh, maybe my room. Yeah. Um, but uh, the um, ultimately, it was just I started cooking, and people, you know, people wanted to eat the food. I enjoyed cooking for a lot of people, and that's kind of when my love of. Uh, cooking for a lot of people showing people how easy it was you know we'd watch i remember like melrose place was on tv so people would come over for like pots of chili and things like that it was nothing elaborate yeah by any means but it was better than cafeteria food yeah and but it gave you that sense of entertaining which yes you know later rolled itself into you know uh, dinner parties and sunday suppers at jeunesse exactly um and then after college you went west coast again to oregon yeah, I moved to, I had, um, 
graduated from college and you know at that time most people kind of go home to where their parents are living and as you can probably understand, I have a unique father. And he was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, getting his pilot's license. And so I went to Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I had a dog at the time. I was one of the few people that had a dog in college. And so my father had rented me this little country home in North Dakota. So imagine what that means. It was like 100 miles of wheat on one side, 100 miles of sunflower on the other. So I stayed there for a little while and kind of went a little bit crazy and uh, decided to move to Eugene, Oregon in, um, in hopes of discovering, you know, good agriculture and food. And I wanted to I wanted to grow, I wanted to garden. So I moved there and it was an incredible place. I lived there three and a half years. Um, I learned so much about organics, farming gardening, eating, cooking, seasons. Um, It was one of the few places I've lived where seasons were so profound. I mean, like you couldn't wait for the pears to come in. You couldn't wait for hazelnuts. And um, it was really, um, it was really a superb uh, experience for me. And after three and a half years, I discovered that I wasn't a hippie (laughs) and uh, I might not belong there, but it it really served its purpose with me, for sure. So you were enrolled in the University of Oregon? No, No. I did some uh, recreational kind of classes and stuff like that. And I had a neighbor at the time who was in charge of the urban farming program, um, which was more for recreational um, kind of things. So we did a lot with that. And, uh, you know, that's where I learned all of the gardening, you know, everything from pruning to you name it. I built my own greenhouses, started everything from seed. I had like about an acre garden at the end, um, grew absolutely everything, which is also where I started to grow all my own herbs and started experimenting with cooking with them, um, growing specialty herbs. So I think that that also is kind of what contributes to, you know, my, my recipe creations and stuff is because I have been a gardener. I, when, since I moved to New York, I kind of haven't been able to find yeah. the land, but <laughs> yeah, there are rooftops everywhere though. Yeah, no, I know, but it's not so easy to rooftop garden. Yeah. You need your landlord to say it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Or just not tell them. Oh, <laughs> But so after Oregon, you moved back to Santa Monica and started cooking a little bit more from, uh, you know, your origins. Yeah, um, I moved back to Southern California because at that point, you know, when I discovered I wasn't a hippie, um, I realized that a person had to try and make more than $10 an hour. And so um, I saw that the people in Hollywood were. And so I figured it must be easy down there. (laughs) Um, so I moved back to Southern California in the, to, in the San Diego area. And, um, I started teaching classes recreationally, um, more of a, as a hobby. And that's when I got into the herb business. Yeah. I, I like the herb business. The, yeah. That's yeah, one of my bar introductions yeah, because, is I'm in the herb business. Yeah, because most people in I San Francisco herb. are in, yeah, the herb business yes. as well. Um, so you were in San Diego cooking about, there was a point where you stumbled on this glorious, gigantic basil field. Can you tell us a little about that story? Yeah. Um, so uh, looking for a job in Southern California, I have this habit of um, trying to apply for jobs I'm not qualified for. <laughs> you should be very weary of that before you go into like brain surgery or something because I really feel like I can learn on the job. <laughs> so I was uh, driving out to this huge garden center to apply for this like manager of the entire garden center it was like 200 acres of 
gardens. Um, and uh, I drove by this huge basil field in, um, it's actually kind of uh, in between uh, Oceanside, California and um, Fallbrook. And uh, I didn't understand what it was. Why was there a huge basil field in the middle of nowhere? What was it for? And so I began to kind of drive around and find the entrance. And I finally did. And I found this little farmhouse. And, you know, I walked in and I was like, what are you guys? I would like a job here. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And um, but it turns out that it was a company called uh, Herb Time Farms, which is one of the largest um, fresh herb growers on the large scale market. And uh, they called me back, gave me a job and I worked there for a while and learned all about, um, you know, corporate workplace and mass markets for food. And uh, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, because who did they grow for? Was it for local supermarkets, chefs or was it? nationally distributed everything it was nationally it was nationally distributed in the united states and canada and it was for large retailers um wholesalers and also chefs so um you know back then there was not the local movement that there is now so much so a lot of the fresh herbs were provided by these large companies that did you know that also provided for the retail so there was tons of chefs all over the country that we were servicing some of the best restaurants um, and, uh, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, unique experience and it, it ultimately brought me to where I am today. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, uh, you know, see how Nissa went from selling herb nationally <laughs> to exploring it internationally. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Wanted to thank White Oak Pastures. Their cattle are raised in a manner that is and has stood the test of time. Begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, and fertile coastal soil. The cattle are allowed to roam the pastures and graze freely on sweet native grasses all of their lives. White Oak Pastures, all natural grass-fed beef has been available in all of the Whole Food stores in the Mid-Atlantic states. We hope that you will support their program through your purchase of our beef through one of the Whole Food stores. For more info, go to whiteoakpastures.com. We'll be right back. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. 
Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Nissa Pearson of Jeunesse Culinary and Herb Center. And we were just talking about herb in general, herbs in general. <laughs> I guess I have to watch out about the pluralism of that. Um, you were working for a large herbs <laughs> grower in California for a while. Um, I think you worked for a couple in California, correct? Yeah, I after um, after working for Herb Time, um, I moved to uh, Jacobs Farm Del Cabo, which is an organic um, uh, company that specializes in all organic fresh herbs, and also they specialize in cherry tomatoes and some other things. And they grow in California, up in the Pescadero area, as well as Baja, California. So I worked for them for a while as well. Yeah, and. When did you get tired of the West Coast and decided to go into the, well, now wintry, pale New York? That was when I met the Israelis. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear about these Israelis. So I, you know, uh, I had stumped. It's funny because now today in life, I've had so much experience working with the Israelis that a lot of people think that I'm Israeli and Jewish and all of this. And, you know, as a child living in Central America and Southern California, I hadn't met Israelis, honestly. I mean, yeah. So it was kind of, it's a unique uh, story, but eventually we had been doing some business with some Israelis when I was working at Jacob's Farm and um, they were, they had their company in New York and they offered me a job and I had never been to the East Coast, never been to New York. So of course I took the job. Uh, <laughs> I remember calling my father and he said, Everybody should live in New York at some port of part of their life. So where, where in the world was he when he said that? He was in Southern okay. California. And um, so I did. And it's interesting because it's the longest place I've lived. Mm -hmm. You know, I've lived here nine years now and I've never lived anywhere so long. Yeah. So uh, obviously, you know, for me, it was certainly culture shock, but it was it was home. I f it was the first time I felt like I was a part of the world versus just part of, you know, somewhere. And, you know, which I think is an interesting concept today because so many people are, you know, hitting on that local button. And for me, I'm still global. You know, that's kind Kind of my pulse my pulse is on the global level i like being a part of the world so yeah but it seems like you've conflated all those experiences from traveling into a, a more local and regional scale as well yeah i mean i think that one of the things that i've learned by traveling so much you know i've spent the last 10 years after working for the israeli company and starting my own import company um you know i've traveled substantially the last 10 years all throughout uh, South America, Mexico, Europe, um, the Middle East. And one thing I've discovered is that in all of these cultures, people really do place a huge emphasis on their community. And, you know, I hadn't really lived in that in the United States until I lived in Brooklyn and New York. And so, you know, after being here a while, it felt like kind of just like the next step to kind of give back to my community, which wasn't necessarily only what we could find here, but what we can find everywhere. What I can like, I feel like my local contribution is sharing what the world has to offer with my community. Um, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very... I always think back to elementary school when you have like the diorama of all the planets right? and that seems so small, but relevant. It's so much larger than just earth or you see Jupiter or Saturn for the first time that, you know, uh, it, it, it's a very small world and, um, you know, the terminology of local, regional, all that kind of stuff, uh, sometimes get hyper criticized. Whereas, you know, 
Well, I think that's a unique, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting um, topic because where we live in Brooklyn and, you know, most of the cities I've lived in the United States, Santa Monica, San Francisco, San Diego, Minneapolis, you know, all these are very kind of progressive food thinking communities. But, you know, with my experience in that mass market uh, business of selling herbs, um, you realize that there's a large country that we have out there and not everybody eats locally and not everybody shops at their farmer's market. And I think it's a unique perspective to really understand who's out there. I mean, I'm reminded, you know, every time I drive out to the tip of Long Island that we're really no different than any other state in the country. Um, We have all different kinds of people that shop at all different kinds of places. And so I think it's really important that we look at um, how to educate people on all topics of food. I mean, I've passed the part where, you know, in my younger years where I was really kind of like preaching what I wanted everyone to think and how I wanted them to think to where I just want to now provide people with information and it's up to them to think how they want to think. And I believe people, the more good, true information they have, make better choices. Yeah. Well, I'm you see how political food can be, too. Yes. Um, and it must have been eye-opening when you were working for the Israeli company that you were actually importing herbs from both Israel and Palestine. Right. That was uh, um, that was one of the highlights of my um, uh, herb life um, because, in, in theory, it was this great, amazing concept where, you know, you were... Um, Palestinians and Israelis were working together, and it was true on this really small scale. You know, when you travel there... You know, regardless of how you feel about the politics of it or whose land it is, everybody, there's a lot of people that get along, that have gotten along for years, that have worked together for years. Um, And so it's always an interesting perspective to be there versus what you see everybody else thinking. You know, we've run into, we ran into tons of people throughout the United States that refuse to buy, you know, Israeli products. And again, it's about education. For instance, we had the problem recently in peppers. Um, We were importing hothouse peppers from Israel and some places said we refuse to buy, you know, peppers grown on Palestinian land. But the truth is, is that because of the USDA, you can only get peppers into the United States from this really small section of land that is like not controversial it's totally israeli so you know there's always more to the story than meets the eye and i feel privileged to get to travel to a lot of these places to really learn what the story is yeah well in 2005 you struck it out on your own creating jeunesse international what was that business it was an import business um i basically you know took what we i had been doing and started my own business um uh, and we started to import fresh herbs and peppers and tomatoes, and then we branched out into fair trade uh, fruits, and all of it was organic. Yeah, can you define fair trade? I think it's often, you know, uh, over, you know, not explained enough. Well, I mean, the definition of fair trade is um, there's a lot of different ways you can define it depending on who you are. Um, there are certifying agencies, there are certain labels, like there's the one label that, you know, is probably most predominant in the United States, it's used on coffee and teas and chocolates, and, you know, that is uh, Fair Trade USA, and um, they're a certifying agency, and so there's a number of certifying agencies all over the world, so depending on which certifying agency, they're, they're all different qualifications, but ultimately, 
you know, for me, the definition is paying people fair wage for their product and, you know, not taking advantage of them on both sides, which is a really um, huge problem in the American market of food. You know, we import a substantial amount of our food, and yet we have really no idea what we're doing both to local populations and global populations that we're not paying them enough and uh, we're not contributing back enough into the long-term sustainability of it all. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating you say both local, uh, you know, in, in, in that statement. Do you feel like we pay enough um, for local workers in the, the, you know, American workforce? No. As far as, I, you know, creating the foods that we eat too. I mean, I think that, again... You know, it's there's there's ultimately no. I think that we don't um, we we want food for as cheap as we can get it. You know, and uh, it's not cheap to produce food. Um, because is fair trade a stamp that can be applied to national products? No, not yet. I mean, that's yeah. kind of one of the controversies. You know, we've seen it a lot in a lot of the fruits where, you know, there's all these fair trade stamps for global fruits, but not for um, local fruits. For instance, the apples. Now, um, in Europe, it's a little bit different because they can have fair trade, you know, apples here. We haven't, we don't have the fair trade stamp on apples because of our own apple industry, but they're working on those kind of things. And, you know, I'm a big um, uh, proponent of getting a local fair trade kind of stamp. We wanted to um, do that in the herb category. We were actually working on trying to get the Palestinian herbs fair trade, you know, approved. And in the process, we wanted to get small USA growers as well. So yeah, it's kind of fascinating that that doesn't exist. I mean, it just seems, yeah, I know you shrug your shoulders, but I mean, it, it does. It seems like a, um, a given or an assumed to me that it's there. But, you know, you can be buying everyone, you know, talks about the the terrible large companies mass producing, you know, certain foods. But it doesn't talk about how to, you know, figure out which companies are good nationally. Yeah, I think that ultimately, I mean, I agree and it's a big problem, but I think that we have a larger problem in the sense that, the fair trade label and the fair trade certification for produce in general, it's very difficult because the market doesn't want to pay what the fair trade premiums are. And so regardless of even if the, let's say the, um, you know, Washington Apple people or the New York Apple people can get a fair trade stamp, they're still not going to be making enough money as they, you know, for their apples. Yeah. So there's kind of a larger problem in the sense that our markets are still, um, underpaying growers and you know do i have the answer to that please don't ask because i don't but you know certainly we know that um farmers need to make more money yeah i mean do you still work in the trade um i dabble in the trade now (laughs) um i do some consulting work and things like that and um we're um actually i'm helping some people organize some uh local herb growers um things like that but uh for the most part um it's a very 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 stressful business um it's pretty much a 24 hour seven day a week job um that you need to be on your toes nonstop. and you know for me after doing it for about 10 years i didn't dedicate a whole lot of time to myself or my own life and so uh i'm trying to take some time to do that but I still am a big global grower advocate, and um, I'd like to continue to work both with local growers and global growers and trying to get them to markets at fair prices. Yeah. Like Which, a revolutionary. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it shows in, 
Inverness in, in, in the center itself, um, if you just go look at the class list, um, it's not just using seasonal ingredients. It's about bringing outside global influences. You have a couple really cool upcoming classes, um, something as simple as, you know, cooking with hearty greens or meatballs. But then you see things like Chinese soups, which so happens to be right near Chinese New Year mm-hmm. or, you know, a uh, when you do Sunday suppers, it's often more global or ethnic cuisine than it is, you know. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, again, I think a lot of our classes are really a product of my interests. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about having your own company is that uh, you can have your own interests come to fruition. And uh, the classes, I mean, I try and come up with classes. And the whole idea of creating journeys as classes in the first place was to, because I didn't want people to be bored in cooking classes. I wanted people to have a full hands-on experience and really enjoy and be able to take away something. So I think that a lot of the worldly influences are important because the world is small. Ingredients are becoming more accessible, even locally. Um, And so I think it's important that people learn, you know, how to use everything. And, you know, I think fusion's okay. Yeah. We have kind of a little bit of a controversy these days with that, but... I think it's okay. Yeah, I think everyone is fused. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't think there's anyone that is still, you know, 100% this, 100% that. Um, I, I wouldn't call it myopic, but, you know, singularly focused anymore. It's about collection of uh, past influences and, you know, experiences. But I, I do suggest to anyone who has not taken a class at Jernis, and it's ger-nis.com, check out their class schedule because you really do see the world in a beautiful little kitchen in park slope um so yeah check it out especially during the dearth of winter when you can bring so much spice and life to uh food through nissa's travels and experiences thank you so much for being on the show i I don't see this as the last time as you being our herb consultant here nice (laughs) excellent um and you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.com and Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Again, a big shout out to White Oak Pastures for sponsoring the show. Have a good one.